Hello and welcome to another episode of Screen Wars, our thought leader series, where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the convergent TV space. Hosted by Michael Beach. Today, I'm joined by Brian Weiser. Brian is currently the principal at Madison Wall. Uh, yeah, I've known Brian for several years, and uh, you know, he's a brilliant guy. You know, rare experience uh, combining uh, you know, experience at, at Wall Street firms such as Lehman Brothers and Deutsche Bank, uh, with the biggest, you know, Madison Avenue, including WP and Interpublic. Um, you know, in our talk, we go through you know, a bunch of topics. Um, probably three that really stood out to me were, you know, what are the blind spots for uh, Wall Street and publicly traded companies about the other? Um, you know, Brian kind of talks about the uh, how Wall Street wants to have a longer term perspective, and and uh, publicly traded companies really choose the type of investors they have based on um you know how they act and how how long-term focused they are and then uh you know, we talk about you know potential recession a little bit we, we recorded this right after uh the kind of the svb panic and uh probably the day uh that credit suisse was was uh having problems so this you know uh seems pretty timely and we talk about you know what could happen to ctv advertising you know and how would that fare during a recession uh, and then one area, you know, Brian's written a lot about that hits home for us is um, how national brands, you know, why they don't buy more local advertising. And he walks through uh, the challenges there, which I, I thought was really interesting. I know our audience would love. So uh, please enjoy my conversation with, with Brian Weezer. Hey, Brian, welcome to Screen Wars. Thanks for having me. Excellent. You know, I've been reading your content for, for many years. And I can remember us, you know, talking about, you know, political spend, uh, even as far back as, you know, eight to 10 years ago when. I was at Target Victory and you were at uh, Pivotal. Uh, you mind kind of tell us about uh, Madison Wall and the kind of the uh, problem you solve and who your target audience is? Yeah, well, just uh, for background, you know, I've straddled uh, the worlds of uh, Wall Street and Madison Avenue for 20 plus years. Uh, I was a banker and analyst, then went to work in agency land uh, and then went to work in ad tech and then back to a Wall Street role. Uh, and then uh, went to WPP for you know, most of the last four years. And since uh, end of January, have been off my own uh, doing uh, what we're calling Madison and Wall. Uh, it's consulting work. And uh, really, it's any advisory services that I can provide that ideally sit at that intersection, in helping companies who need to be conscious of the issues that you know providers of capital care about, think about, but also um, the strategic issues that companies need to focus on. And, and bridging those two is kind of a sweet spot. I, I can help either with one or the other, meaning uh, you know, a company might only have a strategy question where I'd like to say I'm a pretty good analyst and I can help analyze a given situation. I can help think creatively about what the right strategy is and strategic solutions are. Um, you know, I can also help, uh, you know, if there's private equity investors who are trying to understand where opportunities are or whether or not a business is going to grow into a valuation that they're considering paying. Uh, there's lots of different ways that those skills can be applied, but that's essentially what Madison Wall is. What do you think the, the biggest blind spot that each side has for the other is? I think that uh, certainly from a corporate perspective, there's a lack of appreciation for the idea that Investors don't want to be short-term oriented, especially public market investors. Public companies in particular, and anyone in a private company who's preparing to become public, thinks that they have to focus on an investor base that's going to just fix it on the quarter. This is a, an inaccurate observation in the, in the sense that investors become short-term oriented when they're not given a reason to be otherwise. 
this is a really important point. I find that uh, many boards, perhaps most boards, tend to be very conservative in how they think and act uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, systemic and structural. But for the most part, that then often leads to CEOs who have to be somewhat conservative to keep the favor of their board, which then leads to relatively conservative choices, um, which leads to a lack of investment in growth opportunities, which then causes investors to be very, shall we say, very short-term oriented. No one's swinging for the fences and then investors start to expect it. And then, well, again, let's use the political uh, uh, metaphors here. It's like politicians gerrymandering districts, right? Well, companies, you know, politicians in a gerrymandered district choose their voters Companies choose their investors to some degree. You create a profile that is going to appeal to certain kinds of investors and deter others. If you create a certain profile of a company that uh, appears to be short-term oriented because in fact you're making short-term oriented decisions, guess what your investor base is going to look like? The opposite can also be true. Um, that if you rigidly focus on the long-term and you have a, a conviction in what you're doing and you really believe it and you uh, are consistently investing against those long-term views, you will have a longer-term uh, shareholder base, at least in terms of the assets that are invested against you, not the trading on a day-to-day basis, but in terms of the, the long-term uh, shareholder base that you have. So I think that's the biggest uh, misconception I think on the uh, um, public company side and, and even private company side, on the investor side, uh, I, I think that there's there's not always enough appreciation for the logic uh, behind why companies make the choices they make. You hear investors who maybe have only ever grown up in financial services, and they say that, "Oh, that's irrational," you know, or this choice these people don't know what they're doing or whatever. Well. There usually are rational choices for why people make the choices they make. It's just sometimes they're really hard to uncover and you have to understand the business well to uncover, like take television upfronts. How often do you hear the saying, oh, it's irrational, right? Or it's a, it's a, from a bygone era. Actually it exists because it's better than the alternative of not having an upfront, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. Um, we are kind of recording this mid-March, so we are a few days after uh, the SVB crisis started to calm down. Um, so hopefully, you know, in three or four weeks when this comes out, that you know we still have a functioning economy. But uh, what's your take on the overall market, and what's the impact it is having on Madison Avenue? Well, you know, if if we were recording this last uh, Wednesday morning, as in uh, March, uh, what would that be, eighth? I would have said, well, you know, conditions are actually pretty good. Soft, I was team soft landing from about 15 months ago. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why that seemed to be evident, or at least that the conventional wisdom around a downturn was just wrong for most countries. And um, that was kind of playing out, I think we could safely say. Uh, once you get into Wednesday afternoon <laughs> of last week and Thursday, like, hmm, as someone who worked at Lehman Brothers, uh, although I was gone in 2002, but very aware of, you know, what can happen to a bank that's left to hang dry. Um, and uh, I was a little bit concerned, but mindful that, you know, depositors would hopefully get, maybe not bailed out, but guaranteed. And sure enough, we saw that. So great crisis avert or avoided. And now today we have uh, Credit Suisse as a potential crisis. Uh, so, you know, mindful that 
there are real risks that could create systemic problems, but you know, it's not, it's not like with, with, with Lehman going under, you know, that that minute it happened. I remember where I was the second I knew it was not going to be rescued. And I remember what I immediately thought that meant for everything. It was, it was clear. It was not good. We aren't there yet. Right. And it's always a possibility. Um, but I think your base level assumption should be still on soft landing in most countries around the world, probably not going to see any impact. I think that there are heightened concerns, but then advertisers already had a lot of heightened concerns because I believe that in the United States, uh, most of the advertising industry talked itself into a downturn last year, incorrectly assuming that there was going to be uh, an economic downturn. And last I checked on a real, as in inflation adjusted basis, 2022 looked like a pretty normal year other than the fact that there was inflation. And I think that any advertiser who believes that advertising can drive growth probably missed out on an opportunity if they cut while their competitors cut. Now, I think that probably didn't have much of an impact because if everybody believes that the economy is going south in the advertising industry and they all reduce their spending, then everybody's equally well off, right? So maybe nobody got, really got hurt in that sense. But you definitely saw consequences to the fear of uh, advertising uh, weakening. And so you probably saw very minimal growth, I would say, in the fourth quarter of last year. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we sell to mid-market agencies and then so we're a hop away from the brand and, and you could tell that they were concerned because, you know, brand was concerned about, was there going to be a reset? You know, it was like a, this like second order effect tightening along the way, whether whether or not it was, you know, because anything real or not, it was definitely someone in the chain was worried. Worries really are definitely, kind of jamming the whole thing up. they were evident from the beginning of last year before the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, and I think that what I was certainly seeing was this uh, a, a conflation between inflation and stagflation, right? The presumption was that you have high inflation that necessarily means that you have an economic downturn. To me, that logic's wrong. It's not to say that it can't happen. Clearly, it can and it does, but it doesn't necessarily happen. And there's plenty of economies around the world I can point to that have had high levels of inflation and still have underlying growth in advertising. They still have underlying growth in their economies. We can say it's preferable to have a low inflation economy. That's fine. And we can say that uh, efforts to bring inflation down can have a negative effect on an economy. But it was never the case that, in, especially coming out of the pandemic, with so much cash on hand for so many people and businesses that we were going to go into a, a proper recession. And so put that analysis aside, most bank economists, most economists, most people do that for a living. We're relying on old models, the same models that say, well, if the yield curve inverts, there must be a, a recession. Like, come on. Like, okay, fine. Correlation is not causation, first of all. And what's the saying? Economists have predicted seven of the last five recessions. Um, so yeah. most people in the industry tended to pick up on that, right? And they thought, oh, it's going to be like mid-70s, like high inflation, economic downturn. Actually, as it turns out, you still had a lot of growth in advertising in 1974, <laughs> notwithstanding what was going on. Yeah, well, and then, you know, thinking back to the 2008 financial crisis, and you know, I started my first company the year after, and you know, we were digital, kind of native, a lot of performance marketing, and you know, we just took off right away, right? And, and you look back at the numbers that a company like Google didn't really seem to slow them down at all. Are there channels that are 
immune to that or the performance channels if there are is like ctv something that you think could be immune or is that would get hit with everything else um i would say so if if you were to ask me what's top of mind for the advertising industry collectively in terms of where they're focused number one is retail media number two is connected tv now i would argue that um retail media is primarily capturing share of spending that that would go to other digital platforms so when a retailer lights up uh inventory or a technology provider helps make it available or you know um, an, an app developer like uber um starts selling ads like there there's going to be money that flows in there there might be some incremental money but not necessarily the majority it's just a shift mostly from other digital channels and um and so there different media owners can benefit essentially what's different with connected tv i would argue for the most part is that it's not that much new money necessarily comes into television. Now you can, you know, this might be a fun area for further discussion. I would argue that in 2021, we probably did see some incremental spending into television from advertisers who were not driving, who were not previously television advertisers. Um, but I don't believe that there's some sort of systemic sustained incremental growth into television because of connected TV. And so the vast majority of activity is mostly about a shift of, of advertising budgets that roughly will mimic or mirror the shift of consumption. And the shift of consumption into connected TV-based environments is going to be related to the shift of content spending. There's a relationship between share of content spend and share of viewing time on television. So these things map out pretty in a pretty straightforward manner, which tells me that Connected TV probably continues to grow in the sense that it takes share of television, but television itself is not immune. Okay. Well, we had uh, last week, Mike Shields on, and he wrote an article uh, a couple weeks ago about YouTube, and it's kind of the, the quarter it had a you know, slow growth. And we were trying to figure out what, you know, what kind of drove that. And he had a couple, um, couple theories in his essay, but you know, one we were talking about, you look at all these surveys of uh, convergent buying and planning, and you know everyone says that their teams are converged. But we're, you know, is that actually the case, or is there still a lot more silos somewhere in the process that is keeping people from? If you're cutting budget, maybe you cut YouTube first because you don't think it's real TV or it's it's premium video, or you know, what's your theory behind why their ad growth is nowhere near the pace that they're time spent with, with streaming us. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, questions that we can ask and a few answers we can know with certainty. I mean, for starters, um, do we have any idea how much of their revenue is coming from the US? Nope. Yeah. So do we have how, any idea? We can make an estimate about what the constant currency growth rate is, by the way, which would be higher than the headline number everyone is focused on at a few percentage points at minimum. Right. So that's one thing yeah. to consider. Second is you don't know that they weren't exposed to a market like you know, India or Indonesia, where maybe for one reason or another, they were disproportionately impacted. There's just no way to know that. So that's the starting point about what little we know. The other thing to consider is that when it comes to large brands, so roughly 200 advertisers would be about 90% of network TV, 60% of all TV. Um, for that group of advertisers, right, and just round numbers, typically $300 million media budget, maybe, you know, at this point, $150 million on television each, something like that. Um, YouTube is probably only getting a very small share 
um, of that budget from a TV budget. Um, I would estimate that if all television, uh, as we historically defined it, is whatever the number uh, you want to use, $70 billion, let's say, um, YouTube TV, meaning, and, and I would separate the VMVPD, which is plainly television and plainly able to connect, capture connected TV from the, the VMVPD. Other YouTube inventory, which is not uh, universally viewed as television. If that number was a billion and a half, maybe something like that, it would surprise me. There's no way to know, to be clear, but it's going yeah. to be a relatively small share. So think of, okay, that 70 billion total TV, call it 45 billion is national TV. Some number that's a low single digit percent is part of a television budget. There is other spending that's coming from search right? YouTube is the second most important search engine after Google's main search engine. So that's something to consider. Um, the other moving piece would be, uh, you know, was there some kind of impact in performance-based advertisers? How much was crypto? How much was e-commerce? Like all these different category related things that we just can't know. So it's hard to say what the driver is that, but the large brand theory, I don't agree that I think that large brands do spend a lot of money on YouTube. YouTube is increasingly important. Um, it's very likely that deceleration occurred uh, to a very low level of growth for large brands across all YouTube spending as was true generally in the fourth quarter. But I think that that's sort of the macro trend more than anything else, not, macro industry level trend, not uh, something around uh, being holistic or not being holistic. That'd be a big headline. You've got roughly, you know, two to two and a half percent of the 70 billion on, you know, high level idea here, right? On on YouTube that they're, you know, I believe Nielsen, they count for 10% of total TV time. So it's an, a way under invested channel. If well, 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 Apple's let's, unpack Apple, right? that. let's unpack that. No, I am not actually, well, I'm, 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 I'm with you. I'm, I'm not saying that the, the content's not Apple's apples, right? So people don't, but when no, people look at it, they assume on, it's the same people buying both. Yeah. You're hitting on an important point that I don't think enough people unpack. Maybe this will be a blog post for one of us. Um, okay. So when Nielsen make, uh, produces that number, uh, they're including the VMVPD in the YouTube yeah. number. I don't think that's. I should think be... it's about half a percent or something like that. It's, no, it's, much or, bigger. It's less than one percent. Yeah. Well, no, the VMVPD they have roughly five million subs, right? That means that yeah. they have so five million out of whatever the number is right now, sixty if five million pay TV subscribers. Yeah, they got about 12, 12 13 percent something like that. Right. Of the and if, even if you assume they underweight total TV viewing, all TV viewing that goes through YouTube's VMVPD is included in that YouTube line item on the gauge. Yeah. Right. That's going to be the majority of the YouTube tracked thing. So the money that's flowing into YouTube TV in that context, that's really TV money. It's, it's comparable to Pluto or it's comparable to Tubi or it's comparable to sling it's, or, and frankly, it's comparable to spotlight Comcast legacy spotlight or effective as they call it to spectrum. Like the point is it's as far as I'm concerned, part of that it's national money. Yes but it's part of that line item that you would have included historically as part of the local number. So I would separate that and you end up with a much smaller share of total time spent that is YouTube, like what we, the non-professional produced content. And the other thing, back to the whole time money thing, remember 
when you're capturing all of that YouTube VMBPD inventory, most of it, they don't have the right to sell, right? If you're watching Bravo or ESPN delivered over YouTube's VMBPD, that's getting tracked as YouTube in that data set, but they don't have the right to sell. They get two minutes an hour, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And they still, uh, you know, YouTube TV subscriber, you know, still quite a bit of, I would call them promo spots. They're like relaxing landscapes with you know, music um, for whatever reason. But uh, well, they still have a lot of, that's the point that they do have a ton of opportunity, by the way. I'm just saying, let's, yeah. let's make sure that when we're analyzing it, let's analyze it clearly. So yeah. where there's interesting opportunity, if you're a YouTube and frankly, TikTok for that matter, is if you think that, okay, pay TV penetration is going to fall below 50% within a couple of years in the United States. That's kind of a catalyst for thinking about what does that do for reach and frequency in a typical advertiser's campaigns? It's already really bad when you're trying to get past, say, a 50th percentile of reach. Think about the cost per incremental point of reach at that level. The gap uh, between where cost per incremental points of reach will cost for a typical campaign two years from now versus today is just going to be astronomically different. So if you're an advertiser who cares about reach and frequency, how are you going to manage that reach curve? If you don't include YouTube and TikTok until it gets banned, not when now, um, if you don't include them, um, you're going to find yourself challenged to manage your costs. I think other advertisers will say, did we really care about reach and frequency? Does it really matter? What was that academic underpinning to why we do it? It comes from the 1890s. Oh, hmm, maybe we should revisit that. Um, and so some advertisers may say recent frequency shouldn't matter. Therefore, let's reorient all of our TV budget around some totally different paradigm. Could be performance, could be something else. But all the conventions that were used to drive budgets in the past, throw them out the window, start again. Other advertisers will say, if we're going to use recent frequency, we need to use YouTube. How many fall into one camp or the other? I don't know. But I, I think we're at, we're, I don't like to use the word tipping point often, but I think this is a good example of one we're getting to a tipping point where large brands have to think about which side they want to be on. I don't think status quo will hold at all. Yeah. I mean, do you think the thing I've always been challenged with, with performance, especially with video, it's hard, you know, anytime we've done kind of direct response TV with anything other than like, you know, really low cost inventory our uh, you know, our CAC has been really high. Right. And it's, uh, but you know, you know, you're driving other value in there, you know, top of funnel branding and, and things like that. Um, but if you're only looking at it, I mean, do you think people are sophisticated enough to make a value judgment with a mix of, of outcomes? Uh, you know, torture data long enough, it'll tell you anything you need it to. Um, so I think that, that, that there will be growing sophistication. I think the marketer will start with the premise of here's, here's the organizing principle we need. Now let's go find the best way to make this happen, right? So, and it, it comes down to like belief more than anything else. It's like religion. Like you believe YouTube is like television. Television is important. Video, sight, sound, and motion, adjacency to content. Um, and, and, you know, secondary is targeting, secondary is performance, okay? So now having decided that this is an important part of your overall strategy, how do you make the most of it? And that's where the data matters. And that's where you're going to look for the data to give you signals to justify an allocation. 
what I'm suggesting is that YouTube and TikTok again, until it gets banned, um, have so much inventory, relatively speaking, like the incrementality that it offers in terms of reach potential is substantial. So I think that you'll look for the metric to justify the choice you need to make based on the strategic view that you have. Uh, there'll be other advertisers, of course, they'll find models, they'll do A-B testing all day long, and they'll, they'll make a choice. But I observe that most certainly large brands do not are not able to do proper A-B testing for a whole bunch of reasons. And so you'll get media mix models, it'll make one suggestion or another. But again, you're going to keep tweaking the media mix model until it gives you the answer you need. Yeah. Well, an area close to home for us is local. And I don't know if it, somebody wrote recently or it was in your kind of your archive, but you, you told a story about uh, recommending a market by market plan to a big brand and kind of the, the wheels fell off. Kind of, you might tell us that story and kind of why you think that happened? Yeah. So I, again, I can't, the year is 2003. I showed up in agency land knowing nothing about advertising. Remember, I, no, earlier in my career, I worked in college radio. I mean, nonprofit no advertising radio. So like really removed from advertising in the mid nineties. And then as a banker and uh, analyst, I mean, I covered telecom and media and then cable, but not advertising. So I knew nothing. And I remember um, uh, asking a uh, head buyer at the time, uh, Hey, if we can identify 20% of the local markets that drive 80% of the variation of outcome of a given campaign, um, would we want to allocate as much as we could to those 20% of markets? And they said, Oh, Brian, we don't do local. And, and what they meant was, um, the client doesn't do local. The client in the clients in general, having selected an agency for, with a certain kind of scope of work and a certain amount of spending going to non-working spend, because by the way, agencies don't work. Did you know? Um, uh, that's how many marketers think of it. They don't want to bear those costs. Moreover, uh, because it's more expensive for every dollar you spend on local requires more spending on services, agencies and otherwise. And you have yeah, lower quality, quality measurement, all these other things. We know that. But it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's more effective. That's the sad thing. And that's where I go back to anytime someone says, oh, it's all about ROI. It's like, um, no, that's a, that's a, that's a, a thing you focus on once you've already made a different choice. Similarly, there is this other issue, very practical to the marketer's credit. Say you're a nationally oriented brand. Are you really going to go to your national retailers that distribute your products and say, hey, you know that $100 million we're spending nationally last year? We're actually going to sacrifice like half the country to, um, you know, just focus on certain parts. You'll still keep our, our store shelf placements, right? You'll still keep supporting us like we normally do, right? No. That's not going to happen. Um, so you've got all these other stakeholders and constituents to think about. And so you just can't, you can't just do that because this doesn't exist in a vacuum. So there are both practical reasons from a commercial perspective for the marketer. And then there's contractual and operational issues in terms of the marketer and agency relationship. And so, you know, the reality is the whole world, certainly in the United States, has increasingly oriented itself around national, not international operations that hollows out all things local uh for that you can blame dwight eisenhower right i've got this whole spiel about how you know had the interstates not been created actually you can blame al gore senior someone told me once um it, because the interstates helped create more of a nationally oriented economic system unlike 
what existed before, which was much more regionally skewed, right? You know, I'm Canadian. So we had a country from 18, I don't know, 70, because you had the railroad connecting British Columbia to Quebec. And you had a basically integrated economic system. You had an integrated economic, you know, me media system with the CBC. The United States had nothing like that. I mean, yes, broadcast networks, but, but from an economy perspective, pre-war, you didn't really have that. You did have it afterwards. And so with every passing year, the American economy became more nationally oriented and nationally oriented. And that fundamentally is what hollows out local media. All that happened and we did not get hockey night in Canada down here. So it doesn't seem like a fair trade. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, on that, I mean, how do national brands that do buy regionally, how do they think about the allocation and how should they think about it? I, I, I mean, what I observe is it's business model specific. So, you know, if, if you're a uh, an auto manufacturer, you come to some negotiation with your uh, dealer associations, and there's a lot of moving parts in that, right? Once you've made that commercial arrangement, but in, and and I I've never been in the room in those conversations. I assume that different sides make different cases for, you know, one thing or the other, and they come to an agreement based on a lot of different trade offs, right? Uh, if you look at uh, quick service restaurants, the same thing. You, so you have different pressures, um, different considerations. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the winning argument generally will, I think, be more nationally skewed just because you, any efficiency argument will always favor uh, a national skew. And efficiency only defined in a very narrow sense, meaning what's, what costs less for a given you know, number of impressions. Or, you know, it's because it's so hard to isolate cause and effect if, when it comes to sales. Like you can, you can market mix model things all day long, but there's so many things that can't be captured properly. Um, the things you can capture with some certainty are going to be, you know, cost and what you've got specifically for that cost. And that tends to favor, you know, national media. Excellent. Well, I'm going to get you out here on a couple more questions. Uh, one, as a uh, former and future podcast mogul, what was your favorite question to ask us? Oh, who are you? <laughs> Why are you here? No, well, exactly. Like, it, it, so one of my um, favorite former colleagues, friends, acquaintances from uh, my radio days is a, a person known as Nardwar the Human Serviette. If you don't know who that is, look him up. Uh, and of course, his intro question on his uh, weekly radio show was always, Who are you? And, you know, you hear a Pharrell Williams or a uh, I don't know. There's plenty of uh, you know, plenty of celebrities he's had on, and it's always great to hear the answers. That's great. Uh, kind of looking over all the, the the video ad industry. If you could wave a magic wand and, and change one thing about it, what would it be? But the ad industry, uh, video video specifically. Um, I think that. Uh, Marketers need to focus on being holistic as possible. And that means focusing on wherever possible on value, not cost. Uh, and I think that that's probably that there'd be so much good that would follow from that. <laughs> I think that cost, unfortunately, trumps value in most cases. Definitely. Well, I definitely talk to you all day here and, and, uh, 
yeah, appreciate your time. Where can our audience find you? Uh, they can reach me at uh, Brian at Madison and wall.com. Uh, there's Madison and the website where I'll actually uh, host uh, certain archives of things I've written in the past. And then of course there's my Substack, um, which is, you know, Madison wall.substack.com. Yeah. The, I thought the archive, I think you posted maybe last week was, was awesome. I got not a little rabbit hole in there, but I plan to include, uh, a, some of the include different things every month. So I'll, I'll update that. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Wars. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find out more about Cross Screen Media at crossscreenmedia.com. Please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, State of the Screens. You can find us on social media at Cross Screen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.